number of years ago, a very astonishing thing happened in the borough of Harlem in New York City. A construction worker by the name of Wesley Autry was standing on the subway platform with his two young daughters, ages four and six. They were waiting for the next train. While they were waiting, suddenly off to the side, another man waiting on the platform, apparently suffering from a seizure, stumbled and fell off the platform down onto the tracks. Now, just at that moment, the headlights of a rapidly approaching subway train appeared in the tunnel coming towards the platform. Acting quickly and with no thought for himself, Wesley Autry jumped down off of the platform onto the tracks to try to help and to rescue the stricken man. He sought first to, to drag him off of the, the tracks away from the train, but he immediately realized, and this is all happening in split seconds, he immediately realized that the train was, was approaching far too quickly and there wasn't time to pull the man off of the tracks. So Wesley uh, pressed the man down into the hollowed out space between the rails and he spread his own body over the struggling man to protect him as the train passed over the two of them. The train cleared Wesley by just a few mere inches. In fact, later they discovered two grease marks on the top of Wesley Autry's knit cap from the underbelly of the train. When the train came to a complete halt, Wesley looked up to the platform at all the frightened onlookers who had just witnessed this, and he said, there are two young girls up there. Will you please let them know that their daddy is okay? Immediately and for good reason, Wesley Autry became a national hero. People were, were moved by his act of selflessness. They, they marveled at the courage and bravery that this man had mustered up and had responded in split-second fashion to the need of the moment. And we would all agree that what Wesley did on that day was absolutely remarkable. I mean, think of it. He, he had no obvious reason to help this stranger. He didn't know the man from Adam. He had his two young daughters to think about and to be concerned over. What he did was putting his own life at severe risk. But there was something that clicked in Wesley Autry. He, he saw a desperate need and he was moved with compassion and he responded. He did what he could to save the man. The subway superman, the newspapers called him the Harlem hero. But the headline in one particular newspaper described Wesley Autry in biblical terms. It read, Good Samaritan saves man on subway tracks. Now, I think if we took a vote this morning, every one of us would agree that Wesley Autry was a good Samaritan. And when I first read this story, and heard about his heroic deed, I wondered to myself, what if I had been on that subway platform that day? What would I have done in those circumstances? 
Would I have been as courageous and brave as Wesley Autry? Would I have what it takes to to jump down on those tracks with a train bearing down on me to help that man? In other words, would I have been a good Samaritan that day? Let me bring it home to you. If faced with those circumstances, again, would you have been a good Samaritan? Many believe that that's exactly what Jesus wants us to ponder in today's scripture passage. Again, Luke chapter 10. Now, I haven't field tested this theory by any means, but I suspect that this may be the best known parable of Jesus of all of his teaching while he was here on earth. Whether in Christian circles or non-Christian circles, it seems that everybody has some acquaintance with or conversant knowledge with Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. But I also believe that this particular parable may be one of the most abused parables of all of Jesus' teaching. And what I mean is this. Perhaps you've, you've heard sermons that go like this. They make it all an allegory. The man who fell among the thieves is a sinner, and the good Samaritan is Jesus, and Jesus comes and rescues the man, and redeems him and heals him, and they totally allegorize it. And I I can see how you could approach it that way. But I really believe if you look at the wider context of Luke chapter 10, that that's a particular abuse of, of Jesus' teaching here. It takes it completely out of context. Or others will, will take this parable of Jesus and they'll interpret it this way. They'll, they'll kind of take a sociological approach to it and, and say, well, there's a good moral in this story that when you see a neighbor in need, you're supposed to reach out and help them and be a good person and encourage them and lift them up and that this is a motivation to do good deeds, to help the poor, to give to places like the Samaritan Inn. Now, that's in there. But that's not the primary purpose of this particular parable. So, so you have every right to ask, well, well, Rick, then what is the purpose? What is Jesus trying to get across in this particular parable? Well, let's look at it together, Luke chapter 10. Uh, and there are four things that I want you to see this morning. The, the first I want you to see is the setting, and we'll see that in verses 25 through 29. And then we'll see the story itself, uh, which comes in verses 30 through 35. And then you have the sequel, which comes in verses 36 and 37. And then finally, we'll look at the significance. Now, I know every good sermon is supposed to have three points. This is what they taught me in seminary, three points and a poem. But because you look like such an intelligent audience this morning, I thought you could probably handle four. So let's look at these four points together, the setting, the story, the sequel, and the significance. First, the setting, verses 25 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. And what's interesting as we set the stage for what's going on in Jesus' parable here are those opening words, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up to put him to the test. That word behold is an interesting word. In fact, you find a a couple of different ways that the word behold is used in Scripture. Uh, One of the primary ways the word behold is used um, is is one to announce that something surprising is going to happen. Uh, For instance, in Luke chapter 2, when Dr. Luke is recording uh, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem in Judea, remember the angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds who are watching their sheep Uh, on those Judean hillsides. And what does the angel of the Lord say to the shepherds? The angel, if you look at it in Luke chapter 2, says, Behold, I have good news of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Behold, surprise. In the words of Gomer Pyle, it would be surprise, surprise, surprise. The word behold announces something that's very surprising. Another uh, particular use of this word behold uh, is is one that um, means listen, pay attention. Uh, We would say, now, listen up. You see that usage in in, um, the life of John the Baptist. Remember when John was baptizing individuals in the Jordan River and and Jesus comes that way, and do you remember uh, as John is baptizing, he looks up and he actually sees Jesus, and what does John say about the Christ? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, pay attention. Something monumental is going to happen here. Something really big and you don't want to miss it. So pay attention, listen up. And I think it's that particular use of that word here that, that um, Dr. Luke uses to introduce this parable. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Now, what you need to understand is that the lawyer that is being referred to here is not a lawyer in the sense that we consider uh, a, a, a lawyer in the 21st century. In Jesus' day, a lawyer was an individual uh, that was a student of the Old Testament scriptures especially the law of Moses. A lawyer in Jesus' day was associated with the scribes. This lawyer may have been a scribe himself. So this man was gifted in knowing the Old Testament scriptures. He knew them backwards and forwards. He, he could quote verse upon verse upon verse of the Old Testament scripture. He was an expert. He knew it. Now apparently, the lawyer didn't like what Jesus was saying, because he's pressing Jesus. You can kind of get the sense of that as you read the text. He's, he's putting him on the witness stand, if you will. He's asking him some tough questions, trying to make him look foolish, attempting to expose a weakness in Jesus' teaching. Now, we can assume, um, based on the basis of his approach, that this lawyer is not a genuine seeker. He's not really looking after truth. He is a hostile inquirer. He just really wants to turn up the heat under Jesus. So he put Jesus on the witness stand and began to cross-examine him. And the lawyer says, so rabbi, teacher, 
in your view, in your opinion, what do I need to do? Pay attention to that word do. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? So this man puts Jesus to the test to find some weakness, a chink in the armor. And after all, this man is a lawyer and he's talking to this young rabbi from a backwater town called Nazareth, a man who has no uh, religious credentials. He doesn't have a string of letters behind his name indicating uh, his qualification. His curriculum vitae is very sparse. He's not been to seminary. What does this young rabbi Jesus know? I'm the expert, the lawyer is thinking. So he puts him on the spot and he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now you need to know that this was a, a very common question on the minds of Jews in Jesus' day. They wanted to know very specifically, what is it that I need to do? What one great, grandiose thing do I need to do to be able to earn eternal life? What can I do to ensure that I will live eternally? And it was all based on works, upon doing. The man's question clearly reveals that. What do I need to do? A basis of works. Well, Jesus was a master teacher. You see so many examples of that. We don't have time this morning to go into all that. But he turns the question back on the questioner. And Jesus said, you're the lawyer. You tell me. What do you think? How do you read it? What's written in the law? You're the expert in the Old Testament law. You give me the answer. And the lawyer answers with this response. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And, and I have to tell you that I really admire this young lawyer. I, under, uh, I understand that as an expert in the law, it would be really challenging to kind of distill all of the teaching of the Old Testament down into a couple of sentences. But this young lawyer does it. And what he does is he lifts two verses out of the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And if you're familiar with that passage, you will know that for the Jew, they call it the great Shema. The verse, verse 4, is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Now think about this for a minute. If there's just one God, if there's not many gods like many of the cultures around the Jews worshiped many deities, pagan deities, they had a God for everything. God, little g, not capital G. And they worshiped many gods. But what was unique about the Hebraic system, the, the Jewish system of religion, that it was monotheistic. There was one God. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You are to love him with all of your soul, your strength, your mind, your whole self. If there's just one God, friends, and I accept that, and I hope you do too, if there's just one God, then you and I owe that one God everything. Everything. Everything you are, everything that you have, everything that you ever hope to be. You don't parse your love out for God to many gods or deities. There's only one God, and he is the Lord our God. He is the one that we have worshiped this morning. And you owe him, and I owe him everything. And the lawyer saw that and agreed with it. And then the second command that he asserts is that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus answers, you answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Again, notice that two-letter word, do. Do this and you will live. Again, it sounds like work salvation. It sounds like there's some way I can earn God's grace, his mercy and his love. Do this and you will live. But there's a very basic principle that, that you and I need to understand when it comes to the love of God. And it is this. We never initiate the love of God. We never initiate it. We never initiate love for God. All we can do, all you can do and I can do is to respond to God's love as it's been demonstrated in our lives. John says, we love God. Why? Because he first loved us. Let me ask you this morning, do you remember when you experienced the love of God for the first time? Think back for a moment. When was it? Was it at some summer camp meeting? Was it in some vacation Bible school? Was it in a service here at LifePoint? When did you first experience the love of God really, really deeply in your soul and you experienced that transformational moment when God forgave you and saved you and redeemed you and made you his own. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism in the 18th century, said of his own personal experience uh, of experiencing God's amazing love, when he was on Aldersgate Street in London, he was hearing the preface to the commentary, Luther's commentary on the book of Romans and he talks about how the Spirit grabbed him there, standing in the middle of Aldersgate Street. And you know how Wesley describes that experience? He, he says so in his journal, my heart was strangely warm. And John's brother Charles would later pen these words about the amazing love of God in his great hymn that we sing from time to time, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. That third stanza says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. We sang it just a little bit ago. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. In the refrain, I can hear great congregation singing it together. 
amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Uh, my point is this. We never initiate love for God. Our love for God is always in response to the demonstration of God's love in our lives. God does the initiating. God in his love and mercy reaches out to us with his redeeming love and reaches down and we merely respond. Paul says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you and I were lost in sin, when we were out there rebelling against God, we had no capacity to love God. We were doing just exactly the opposite. We were living like hellions, living in rebellion against God. But God in his love and mercy and grace reaches out to us, picks us up, the psalmist says, out of the miry clay and puts our feet on a solid rock to stay. Boy, if that doesn't make you say hallelujah, you better check your pulse this morning. So when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, remember, we are just responding to God's love in trust and faith. But when it comes to loving our neighbor, here's when we take the initiative. When it's love for God, God takes the initiative. When it's love for neighbor, we take the initiative. You are to love, as a Christ follower, you and I are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. You don't wait to love. You don't pause. You, you do what Wesley Autry did. You, you take the initiative. You, you put your big toe in the water and say, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna respond to the need. You're the initiator. And Jesus says to the lawyer, Yes, you're right. As you respond to God's amazing love, then you initiate love for your neighbor. So this then leads to a second question by the lawyer. But watch this. The, the man is looking to justify himself. And he says, but, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I find it interesting that the lawyer tends to focus on the neighbor part of the equation and not on the love for God portion of the equation. He focuses on the second half and asks, but who is my neighbor? Why just love of neighbor? My conclusion is this, that you can tell a lot about how much a person loves God by the way they love other people. Did you hear me? You can tell a lot about how much a person loves God by the way they love other people. In my mind, they go hand in hand. And one of the most accurate measurements of our love for God as we respond to his amazing divine love is how we love other people. You can tell a lot about how well a person is getting along in their relationship with God by how well they're getting along with other people. I, I used to have a colleague um, early in my ministry that, that used to say, ministry would be great if it weren't for the people. <laughs> ministry is about people, all kinds of people. 
People who are irritating and people who are prideful and braggadocious and people who are hard to get along with, people who are not reasonable. If you've been in ministry, you know that to be true. Now this question, who is my neighbor, is a crucial one. Because if my neighbor is a family member, person that I love, well then I have no problem laying down my life for that individual. Or if my neighbor is a loyal friend, then there's no question, I'll do anything for that individual. I'll go to the ends of the earth to help that individual. But if my neighbor is the guy next door who is constantly grousing about my kid's ball rolling into his well-manicured lawn, or if my neighbor is the woman on the other side of the cubicle who's forever talking about me behind my back and I hear her talking about me and she's snarky in all of her responses to me and everyone else in the office, well, I frankly, I don't know if I will love her. In fact, I, I really don't. You mean she's my neighbor? So who's my neighbor? So that's the setting. And Jesus is answering that question with his parable. So we can move through the parable really quickly because you know it, you're so familiar with it. So let's look at the story. Verses 30 through 35. Jesus replied, a man, one version says a certain man, a traveler, was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Stop going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. There's an important point there. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, you will know that when you travel from the great holy city of Jerusalem down to Jericho, which is about a 17 or 18 mile trip, that it is down. In fact, the city of Jerusalem is at about 2,600 feet above sea level, and the city of Jericho is about 600 feet below sea level. And there is no question when you're on the tour bus going from Jerusalem to Jericho that you are going down. And that point will become important in a moment. Everybody in Jesus' day would have known that that was not only a descent to Jericho, but that it was a dangerous road. It was extremely rough terrain. In fact, even today, if you were in the Holy Land today, as you make that trek, you would find that it's surrounded by rugged terrain. And in Jesus' day, this was a perilous journey. Robbers were forever hiding and attacking travelers and sojourners as they were making that trek down the Jericho Road. It was a dangerous trip. And this man, apparently, that Jesus is talking about is traveling alone. He doesn't have any companions with him. And we read that he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead, within inches of losing his own life. Now, what's interesting is that as this man is there by the roadside, the first person that was going down that road, Jesus says in his story, was a what? Priest. Notice that he's going down as well. Another important detail. 
because the priest was obviously coming from having just completed his service in the temple in Jerusalem, and he was heading back home. Whether it was Jericho or another town, we do not know, but he was going down. He had just completed his service in the temple. King David had set this up. He had divided the priests up into 24 orders, and the priests were to come to the temple once, uh, twice a year, one week, twice a year, and on high and holy days. And uh, so obviously this priest had completed his service and he was on his way back home. This may explain why he passed on the other side. He, for example, and I'm reading between the lines, he would get home and his neighbor would say, hey, I've missed seeing you around the neighborhood. Where have you been? Oh, he'd say, the priest, I've been at the temple doing my service to God. Oh, magnificent. Let me shake your hand. And the priest would say, oh, no, don't touch me. I'm defiled, I'm unclean. You see, I, I saw a man on the side of the road and he was wounded and he was shedding blood and I helped him and, and now I'm defiled and I'm unclean. And the neighbor would say, ha, you, a priest, you've been at the temple. You've served the Lord and now you're unclean. I can't even shake your hand. Ha, tell me another story. That's a good one. Perhaps that's the reason that that he didn't do anything about the man, the wounded man by the roadside. We don't know. The scriptures are incomplete in giving us those details. But then it goes on to tell us that then a third, a Levite, came along. Now, the Levites were not priests. They were members of the worship team. And they led worship. They were helpers to the priests. And scripture tells us that, that the Levite also passed on the other side of the road gave the wounded man no time of his day. We don't know why. Again, we just read between the lines. It may be that his, his wife had, had dialed him up and said, look, you need to get home quickly with the sour cream and the unleavened bread for me to finish this casserole. I, I don't know. The, the, the scripture doesn't give us the details. But it does tell us that he passed by on the other side. And verse 33 tells us, though, that a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where this wounded man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, it's important for you to understand the relationship between the Samaritans and the Jews. They absolutely hated one another. They despised one another. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews because the Samaritans were half-breeds. Not only were they half-breeds, the main reason the Jews despised the Samaritans was that the Samaritans had developed their own system of religion, their own temple, their own rituals, their own scripture. Do you remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus was at Jacob's well and he sees the woman and she asks him, why do my forefathers, she was a Samaritan woman, why do my forefathers worship at Mount Gerizim and yours worship in Jerusalem? You see, the, the Samaritans had set up their own rival religion. They had their own beliefs, and the Jews despised them. I think to find a modern corollary to this, the best I can do is that a Samaritan viewed a Jew and a Jew viewed a Samaritan like some people today 
would view a member of Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Better to die in a pool of blood on the road than to be touched by a Samaritan. But this Samaritan comes by in his journey. He's probably on a strict timetable. But when he saw the man, the scripture says what? He had compassion. I, I wish we had more time to go into that word compassion today. I, I just want to skim along the top of that. That word com compassion means so much more than just he felt sorry for. He cared for. That word compassion, really, when you look at it in its original meaning, uh, the ancients believed that, we, that, that the seat of our emotions was in our gut, in our bowels. So that when you felt joy, you felt it deep in your gut. When you felt pain or mirth or, or you were mourning and sad, you felt it deep within you. You have compassion. You feel it deep, really deep. Have you noticed where, that your deepest emotions are right here? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Suppose the, uh, the publisher's clearinghouse team comes at your door with roses and balloons, and they announce to you today that you are the winner of the sweepstakes, and they're giving you uh, $7,000 a week for the rest of your life. What are you going to feel? Joy? You're going to feel joy! <laughs> the depths of your being. Or, let's say the Plano police are at your door and they notify you that your son or your daughter has just been involved in an automobile accident and unfortunately, regrettably, they did not survive the accident. How do you respond? At the depths of your being. So when this Samaritan came along and he saw the man by the roadside, he just didn't feel sorry for him. He had compassion on him. He felt it deeply. This man was moved with compassion, and he came to him, he went up to him, and he bandaged his wounds. Did you ever wonder, where did he get the bandages? Was he carrying a supply of bandages on his beast of burden? No, I think probably this Samaritan actually took parts of his clothing and actually tore it apart and, and used his coat and his cloak to, to bind the man's wounds up. And he puts the man up on the beast of burden on the donkey, and instead of riding on it himself, he allows the beast of burden to carry the man to their destination, which was an inn nearby. And when they get there, the Samaritan says to the innkeeper, look, I've just, taken, I've just found this man. He's near death. I've put bandages on, I've poured wine as an antiseptic, I've put oil on to, as an ointment to heal it, but he needs more care, and, and I'm going to stay overnight with him, but I have to get on. I have a business appointment tomorrow, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave you money. In fact, I'm going to leave you two denarii. The scripture is explicit about that. A denarii was equal to uh, the wages one day's wages for a man in Jewish Israel at the time. So let's say it's America today. Let's say it's $150 a day, two denarii, $300. 
So the Samaritan leaves with the innkeeper and he says, I, I want you to not only put him up, but I want you to care for him. In other words, I want you to change the dressings. I, I want you to put more wine and oil on his wounds. I want you to make sure that he's being taken care of. And so he, he leaves the man in the care of the innkeeper. And when I get back, if it's anything more, I'll pay you whatever uh, it has cost you. Very simple story. Now to the sequel. Verse 36, Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Hold it. Wrong question. The lawyer had asked, who is my neighbor? And now Jesus tweaks the question and he asks the questioner, not who is, he doesn't answer who is my neighbor, but he asks a different question. He said, to whom must I be a neighbor? Who is a neighbor to this man who fell among the thieves? And instead of answering the original question, Jesus undermines the man's entire attitude by asking this question, how do I become a neighbor? To whom must I be a neighbor? And the man is forced to spit it out. In fact, he can't even say the word Samaritan. He answers the question and he said, the one who showed mercy. That's the sequel. And so finally we come to the significance. And I see three important points here. It's not enough to just see a need. You must do something. All throughout this story, Jesus is emphasizing an important point here. It's not enough to just see it. You have to do something about it. Now, you know that I'm the CEO of the Samaritan Inn in McKinney. Before that, I was the CEO at the Gospel Rescue Mission in Erie, Pennsylvania, caring for the homeless and those who were oppressed and those who were addicted. Before that, I spent 30 years in church ministry as a pastor, as an assistant pastor. And yet, friends, I have to be real honest with you. I am shocked and embarrassed at how many times I am hard at heart. I can see a need, but I get so wrapped up in my daily affairs that I fail to address the need. During our 30 years of pastoring, Kathy and I frequently now receive appeals from young people who are going on mission trip experiences asking for my financial support. Or I go to the mailbox and I find an appeal from this organization or that organization, from Hope's Door or from Family Promise or from the Samaritan Inn or from Children's Place. And I go to the mailbox and another appeal has come and, and I just kind of groan and maybe there's an ounce of compassion as I throw the flyer into the waste can. To the priest and the Levite, the man along the roadside was just a bother, but to the Samaritan, it was his first priority. It was a man in desperate need, and he was going to do something about it. So it's not enough to see a need. You must do something. The second principle is this. What you do is dependent upon what you see. What you do is dependent upon what you see. Now, we're not sure why the priest and the Levite passed on the other side. It could have been that they were concerned about defilement, could be in danger, could be other things. They saw the man as a bother. 
The Samaritans saw him as someone who needed help. But that's not the main lesson. So lesson one is not enough to see a need. Lesson two is what you do will be determined by what you see. But here's the main point. Lesson three, what you see is determined by what you are. What you see is determined by what you are. Let me tell you what I mean. And this is why Jesus turns the question around. Who was the neighbor? The Samaritan was. He saw the man along the roadside as the neighbor. The principle then is this. What you see is determined by what you are. Before I was called into ministry, I was trained as a classical musician. I was headed for a career in the opera. I realized I didn't have enough talent to make a living at it, so I chose another career path. But I spent years in vocal training and coaching. Subsequent to that, I was a worship leader and then a minister of music in a local church. And so even today, even today, I caught myself in this worship service kind of, and I'm embarrassed, it was wonderful worship, but I kind of dissect, oh, there's a a wonderful chord progression there. Isn't that great? How they've woven that one song into the other seamlessly and the overall arching theme of the worship songs and the trajectory of the the theme in worship. And I have a tendency to notice things that maybe you uh, come to worship and you don't notice them at all. What you see is determined by what you are. Let's suppose for a moment that that uh, there are three men in an automobile driving down a country road. The man behind the wheel is a farmer. Have you ever driven down a country road behind a farmer? I wouldn't recommend it. The farmer drives at snail's pace. Why? Because he's looking at all the fields on the right and the left. He's looking to see the progression of the corn crop. He's looking to see how the soybeans are growing. He's, he's noticing that down the road further that there's a field of hay that needs to be cut immediately or it will be no good. He's a farmer. That's what he sees. Let's say the, the person uh, sitting next to the farmer works in road construction. They're traveling down the road. What do you think the man in road construction sees? He sees the way the road is crowned. He notices the drainage ditches along the right and the left side of the highway. He notices the type of material that's used in the pavement, whether it's dirt or macadam or or cement, whatever it is. He sees that. He looks at that because he's in road construction. The person in the back seat in the automobile sells roofing. I bet some of you had some experience with roofers this spring, didn't you? Still do. We're still waiting to get our roof done. The roofer notices that Mrs. Jones needs her roof replaced and and notices that Mr. Smith needs new guttering on the house. And he makes a note to himself that later I'm going to go to Mr. Mr. Smith and Mrs. Jones and sell them a roof and sell them some gutters. He sees what he is. This principle is revealed in the age-old children's nursery rhyme You probably know it. Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to see the queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what saw you there? I saw a mouse running under the chair. Think about that. Here's a cat. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows why he's going there. He's going there to... to London to see the queen and the grand doors of that throne room open up and the regent, the queen is in all of her finest regalia and the trumpets are blaring and what does the cat see? A mouse 
because that's the nature of cats. They see what they are. What you see is determined by what you are. And Jesus says, go, you go, do likewise. First of all, respond to the amazing love of God and recognize that eternal life is not inherited, that you can't earn salvation, that there's no way that you can be good enough to to receive God's grace. Just respond to the initiation of God's active work in loving you, a sinner, now redeemed, one of his chosen ones. And then, once you've experienced the love of God, then go and love your neighbor and recognize that your neighbor is the one in front of you and around you and across the street and across the globe. The high and mighty and the low and poor. Those that are despised and those who are accepted. Go and love your neighbor. We love God because he first loved us. And then as Christ followers, We spend the rest of our days loving people, even people who are despised. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge quickly how frequently we reach back into thinking that we're lovable enough, that we're good enough, wise enough, for you to love us, to redeem us, to save us. And today we want to acknowledge again that we are so unlovely, there's nothing in us that is good. And we just want to respond to your initiation in our life, that you love us with a redeeming love, a love that, that's changing us and renewing us day by day. And then, Lord, we also acknowledge how, how often we are hard of heart and how often we shrink back from helping our neighbors. No matter where you've placed us and who the neighbor is, there are times when we need your spirit to prompt us and empower us to be a neighbor to all those you plant around us. So Lord, help us by the power of your spirit to accomplish this for the glory of your great name we pray.